I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with geneticist George Church. So for today's episode, I sat down with Dr. George Church, who is a professor of genetics at Harvard University and one of the world's leading scientists in the general areas of genomics and biotechnology. I actually met George several years ago while I was doing my PhD at Harvard. He taught a bioethics mini course that I was in, and I tried to cover as much ground as possible in the one hour of time that I had with him today. And we discussed a variety of topics, including genome sequencing and personal genomics, such as how much better and more efficient the genome sequencing technology we have has actually become over the years. We also talked about genome editing, including CRISPR technology, and how George thinks about the bioethics of human genome editing. For both of those topics, sequencing and editing, we talked about some interesting biotech startups that his research has actually helped give rise to and what they're doing. We also talked about the general field of synthetic biology, which can be thought of as the application of engineering to biological problems. And lastly, we also discussed how George has actually coped with and succeeded in life despite having both narcolepsy and dyslexia. Both of these are brain disorders. Narcolepsy is a sleeping disorder, and dyslexia involves difficulty reading despite normal intelligence. So we covered a fair amount of ground in one hour, but if you're generally interested in, to in topics related to genomics or emerging forms of biotechnology, you'll probably find this conversation interesting. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can download the podcast on any main podcast directory. You can subscribe and watch video episodes on YouTube, and you can also support the podcast directly on Patreon. So if you become a monthly patron and pay as little as 2 to $5 a month, that really helps the podcast and keeps it going. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. George Church. Professor George Church, thank you for joining me. Uh, my pleasure. Great to be here. Uh, I'm going to do an intro, but can you very briefly and concisely tell people who you are and what you're known for? I'm George Church, professor of genetics at, at Harvard, um, also at MIT. And uh, I work on technology development uh, for biotech in general, but reading and writing uh, and editing DNA is probably our, our, our most commonly referred to, and uh, applying it to developmental biology all the way through uh, recoding genomes. And I want to start out by talking about genome sequencing and personal genomics. I'm wondering if you can start out by painting a picture, a general picture for people of where we've gone since the Human Genome Project in the 80s to the present in terms of the cost and level of effort, say, in sequencing a human genome and what your general involvement was in the biotech underlying that progress. Right. Uh, well, so I've been uh, kind of a sequencing technology junkie since the 70s, uh, where I started by typing in all the DNA sequence that was known at the, at the time in 1974. And and I, and I just immediately I saw how powerful that could be. I could fold up molecules from sequence, and so uh, around seventy six ish, I, I heard about the um, beginnings of, of new DNA sequencing method from uh, Fred Sanger and, and Wally Gilbert, and so I started graduate school with Wally to, with that specifically in mind. Um, the genome project, so I immediately wanted to do what's now called multiplex sequencing um, and did it during my rotation, meaning it before I had actually joined a lab in graduate school, and felt that, uh, uh, that we should sequence everybody on the planet, possibly every organism as well. Uh, and that was, I think that was kind of the naive musings of a teenager, uh, but uh, it, it, 
it pretty rapidly you could see start to i didn't know about exponentials at the time i had not read gordon moore's uh paper uh but it looked like it was going to go faster than people expected so so i helped start the genome project the last year of my thesis uh in, th in three meetings uh, in 1984, 85, and 86. Um, the 84 one was Department of Energy, and that's really where it started. So, and then um, uh, fast forwarding to your question, uh, it is it really kind of finished in 2004, temporarily, it was kind of a pause where it was still a draft in, in, in many people's opinion. Uh, there were lots of parts missing. It finally, finally finished uh, a, 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 a single uh, genome, human genome, this year. Um, but even that uh, well, isn't clinically useful. So the thing that we did in 2004 was a very poor genome, both because it wasn't complete and wasn't clinically useful. So the methodology that was used for that was immediately thrown out the window and replaced by what's now called next-gen sequencing. I was involved in almost all the methods of doing next-gen sequencing, including uh, two different nanopore methods, or actually a few different nanopore methods, uh, fluorescence uh, um, by sequence by hybridization, ligation, and, and synthesis with polymerase, and so forth. But anyway, that quickly displaced it, brought the price down from about $3 billion for a poor quality genome to now $300 for an excellent quality diploid, meaning both your mother and your father's genome is represented. So there's twice as much information at least. Um, and uh, at, for so $300 for a clinical grade genome that we now have today. And there's probably getting close to, well, certainly millions of genomes are being done per year, different granular, different qualities and, and and goals. Uh, probably the biggest uh, clinical use right now is non-invasive prenatal testing, um, but there's an awful lot that's done for cancer diagnosis and and uh, and you name it. Hmm. So you know, over a period of a couple of decades, things not only got much better in terms of the quality of the technology and how well and how thoroughly we could sequence the genome and fill in all the gaps, but it also got much, much cheaper and faster to actually do that. Correct. So we, some people have said that we're now in the era of personal genomics. So if it's about 300 bucks as the cost of sequencing one human diploid genome, you've got a bunch of new companies sprouting up that are taking advantage of this and allowing people to actually get their own genome sequence and learn stuff about their own genome sequence. Broadly speaking, how would you define personal genomics and why should or should at all an ordinary person care about their own genomic data? Well, a lot of the placeholder enthusiasm, I, I call it that because it was, it was very pragmatic about price. People just were not willing to pay much more than $200 for a partial genome. And so it was very partial initially. It was like a millionth of the genome. Um, but it could tell you a lot about ancestry and a little bit about health. Uh, whole genome sequencing is getting pretty close to telling you everything you might imagine that it would. I mean, it's not going to tell you everything about everything, but it's going to, you know, there's even complex diseases you can get, uh, you know, pr prediction, uh, multifactorial uh, predictive um, cancer, day-to-day um, -day changes. Um, Sorry, uh, in risk and uh, 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 you know circulating uh, DNA from cancer cells, uh, immune changes, and so forth. So all of that has decreased by roughly twenty million fold in the in the raw sequencing costs. Wow. So what? Um, so people are probably familiar with things like Twenty Three and Me. That's maybe the most right. common product out there that at least does a partial genome sequence. I know that many of your students and postdocs have gone on to do biotech startups of different kinds based on the research that they did with you in your lab or, or in uh, labs that you've co collaborated with. One of those is Nebula Genomics. I've actually used this one. Could you describe Nebula Genomics and what they're doing and maybe how it's similar to or different than something like 23andMe? Right. So I was... Uh an advisor to 23andMe since before they started. Uh, I've been very much a advocate. 
because they they were very good at edu educating and getting the word out the uh they and um uh ancestry.com uh, uh really helped establish uh, dna ancestry and got us up into the 20 million sort of people worldwide um, now we obviously want to get to a billion uh, so even their heroic efforts uh, have, uh, have uh, just to start. Uh, but in terms of what you get medically is uh, you can think of there's a kind of a gradient of medical information. So they do, uh, say, a million single nucleotide polymorphisms. So they're the polymorphisms means they're the most common source of variation. Uh, and common variants tend not to be predictive of serious disease. Mm. They tend to be kind of loosely associated, uh, mostly with the less serious diseases. And, and as you get more and more serious, it, be, it, it becomes randomly distributed on, the, the, on top of the common alleles. Um, nevertheless, there are enough uh, uh, that you can add that to the ancestry and it adds value. Um, the next step up is exomes, which means the protein coding parts of your genome is about 1%. So you've gone from uh, a tiny fraction of a percent, maybe a millionth of the genome, to now 1%. Uh, and it, and it, it works. Uh, many, many of the most serious diseases are in the protein coding exome. But uh, to illustrate what is missing is if you chop the gene in the middle and, say, invert it, all, all of the exomes are still intact. Nothing has changed with respect to the exome sequence. We wouldn't expect it to, and it doesn't change. Um, but it's a completely non-functional gene. So you can be really off uh, in that regard. And so, so I think that when you get to medical diagnosis, you don't want to be depend on luck uh, if, if the cost is the same. And the cost is, has been converging. So for a while, exomes were about a thousand times cheaper than whole genomes. Um, and now they're about the same price. They're both sort of in the 200 to $300 range. Um, and, and probably will drop, uh, you know, considerably in the next uh, few years. So, um, I think for any serious medicine, we should be doing whole genome sequencing. Um, where you actually haplotype, which means you can tell all the things that are uh, on your mother's chromosome and your father's chromosome, not just the composition, but the exact sequence. And that's routine as well. Um, and it shouldn't be even $300. It should be free because the, the amount of money that you save on average, not any individual, but it is way more than $300. Mm. It's probably tens of thousands of dollars because it's, uh, it's a million dollars is a typical um, treatment for a rare disease, so-called rare. They're collectively about 3% of births. They're individually, you know, like one in 100,000, but collectively they're about 3%. Mm. And so if each of those costs a million or $2 million, then it's clearly to, to society's advantage to um, make it free to everybody that wants it. So the, so the base... We're very, we're very close to that happening. Oh, wow. So the basic idea is if everyone sort of had their own personal genome sequence handy and they were bringing it to the doctor every time they went for a checkup, the amount of time and the amount you would save in terms of testing for diagnostics would go way, way down because you would have that rich set of genomic information that could essentially tell you things that would otherwise require a bunch of expensive testing. Uh, that That's one way you save, uh, and that's a big way. Uh, it also saves, um, you know, morbidity, mortality, premature, which has huge costs associated with trying to deal with somebody who went through an unnecessary medical procedure or uh, got exposed to um, a disease that, you know, ranging from uh, bad reaction to anesthesia to um, um, uh, inherited disease uh, that could be avoided by genetic counseling. There's probably a trillion dollars a year that's, that's, uh, that could be saved by just just a few of these things, which are on very firm uh, ground right now. It's not like we don't need to do a lot of research to get this going. It's already going. Mm -hmm. We just need to uh, figure out how to communicate to people uh, that even though they may not, you know, they may be in a lucky ninety eight percent. They don't know that in advance.
hmm. um, and and for for the benefit of the public. It's kind of like the same argument for seatbelts and and vaccines and all the rest. Is you may be lucky, but you don't know that, and so why don't you just help the public health effort uh, mm-hmm. by participating in not smoking and wearing seatbelts and vaccines. There's a couple things I want to talk to that branch off this. So one is sort of the personal data privacy issue. And the other is the integration of using personal genomics and data like this with just the general practice of physicians and interacting with your doctor. So for example, I, I have a nebula genomics report, but I have never brought it into the doctor when I go in for a checkup. And I feel like even if I did today, they wouldn't really be able to do anything with it. So how do you think about bridging that gap between having a lot of this data today, wanting to get more, but also creating a medical system in which the physicians are actually equipped to utilize that data? Well, I I actually think they are currently equipped. It is true that your average primary care physician cannot read a genome report uh, and wouldn't wouldn't have time or, or necessarily the interest. It is also true that your report and my report probably don't have much that even if they were uh, genome literate, there wasn't that much that they uh, could do about it because 98% of us really um, are, are not going to benefit from the genome um, uh, as much as the 2% will. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we're trying to search for that 2% that are almost immediately actionable. Uh, hmm. And that actionability can, when it's at that extreme level where it is, where it is clear science, as science is clear, you know, it's not, nothing vague about it, that can, can be communi- communicated to the primary care physician easily enough that they can then refer to a specialist. So for example, if you have um, you know, a BRCA1 risk factor, um, there are thousands of them some of them are more common than others, but they're they're quite highly uh, predictive. And and you would what is that? Be, uh, BRCA one is a breast cancer uh, risk factor, um, and it's 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 um, fairly common, especially in certain um, ethnic uh, or in ancestral backgrounds. Um, and even if it's not, uh, no matter where you what your background is, you can uh, you can go to uh, cancer genomic specialist, you can be referred to your primary care physician. All they need to know is this is very reliable data and should be referred to a specialist. Then you go to an oncologist that has some genomics training and, and, uh, and you, and you decide whether you're going to be monitoring, whether you're going to, uh, you know, have a child and then have, um, bilateral mastectomy and overectomies and that, that sort of thing. But that's just an example. There are plenty of things like that. Uh, there's things that you can do preconception and or premarital, which are very low impact and very um, high predictability, but they don't even have to be high predictability because the the negative consequences are low. The consequences of of having um, surgery when you don't need it is high. Is high. So you want to have a very low false positive rate. But if you're doing uh, you know preconception premarital counseling, there's really not much at, at stake. I see. So basically what you're saying is with the existing technology today, we could cheaply give everyone a personal genome sequence. And most physicians alive today in the US would have all the knowledge already that they need to take action on that rare, but very important, very expensive one or two or three people out of a hundred that have a key risk factor like that breast cancer gene. They, They would... It would be easy to get them up to speed just via the report. They don't mm-hmm. have to go to school. It's just the report itself can get them up to speed and they'll know uh, who to uh, send um, to, a, to either a genetic counselor or to an oncologist, a genomics oncologist. Now, uh, now, in your case, presumably, if you had something serious in your genome, they would have told you, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the reason that you're not being referred to your primary, back to your primary care physician is because you're like most of us, uh, you know, there's nothing, there's no alarm going off. Uh, now it is possible that many years from now we'll get even better at the genome. And so there's something for everybody, but I would say right now there's something for 2% of us. It's just that a hundred percent of us need to find out who, whether we're in the 2% or not. <laughs> 
Interesting. So the other side of this that is maybe worth unpacking a little bit is just questions around data privacy and people's willingness to actually give their data to someone, even if it's not sort of being sold to the highest bidder. So that you know, the question arises, you know, if I get my genome sequenced, who's holding on to that data and giving access to my doctor and who else might they be giving access to and should we be concerned? So uh, I think we should always be concerned, especially with new technology, because there's, even if there are rules that apply, if we haven't had practice applying those rules, so that, you know, there's rules like, the, you know, the FDA has rules, uh, uh, um, uh, there's all kinds of uh, over, over, uh, sight. But so anyway, you should be concerned. Uh, there are uh, good computational methods that can protect privacy, still allow sharing of whatever the minimum is you need to share. Uh, so let's say, you know, in my genome, I have, um, I'm a compound heterozygote for alpha-1 antitrypsin, serpina-1, and that could affect my um, uh, respiratory system, COPD, COVID-19, and so forth. And so that's something I could share with a physician just by saying it, like I have with you, uh, and they don't need to see my genome. They can, you know, refer me to someone who could do appropriate uh, uh, advanced functional diagnostics. Or I could share the genome, but in such a way that they can only ask about the, the, you know, exactly what allele it is and exactly, you know, what other modifier alleles. And, 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 and they never own the genome. They never possess the genome. I, I am the owner of it, and only I can, and, and in fact, it can even be made, their computer methods, it can be made so even I can't decrypt it. So if, let's say, you know, a uh, uh, nefarious government comes in and, and uh, orders it, you know, orders at gunpoint the, my physician to turn it over or orders me to turn it over, they can't decrypt it because even I can't. Um, all they could do is, um, uh, you know, with the or the appropriate medical know-how, they could ask very specific questions of it. I see. So basically, encryption technology can be used to regulate who gets to see what or sort of portion out. Like I could give per permission to a physician to see only this part of my right. chromosome 13 where there's a, a gene that's relevant. Right. And and this is what Nebula has pioneered. Um, I mean, Nebula is not the first uh, personal genomics company that I've helped. Uh, make, uh, but it's it's really the first one I think that got really serious about the privacy aspect. Uh, and my understanding, it's been a while since I've sort of checked on this, is that one of the things that Nebula has done or plans to do is actually allow people to use their genome sequence that they get through Nebula to do uh, to actually monetize it and or help facilitate research. So for example, if Nebula sequences my genome and I've got some sort of rare mutation that's understudied that, that scientists want to study, I could actually decide if I want to, to give them access to my genome for study and actually be compensated for that. Correct. Um, and it's entirely in your control. So it's, it's not like Nebula is going to you know, chain, you know, get sold to somebody else and then they can change their policy. You can do it in a way that uh, no matter who uh, has access to the encrypted form, they can't do anything with it. So even if Nebula goes under or gets acquired or something like that, they can't suddenly change their mind. So that's, that's good. Uh, and in fact, even you can't change your mind. So if you put really strict uh, upfront uh, restrictions on it, and then you later change your mind, then you really, uh, your option is resequence it. But the good news is it's cheap enough that you can resequence it and, and give it a different set of rules. Uh, but the point is that this, in a computer science sense, this is uh, finally feasible to do, um, and, and people should avail themselves uh, of it. Um, uh, you know, if there's various reasons why you would want to do research. For example, if you've got a family disease, and you participate in research, that means your family kind of goes to the front of the queue. Mm -hmm. um, there, it's more likely that a cure will be developed that's good for your family if your family is involved in the research. I mean, that's not a promise, that's just a, that's a, just a, a, a possibility. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So 
we've talked so far about genome sequencing, basically uh, reading the genome and figuring out what it says. The other thing that people have probably heard about at this point is the writing side. We now actually have the ability to change and edit in at least semi-arbitrary ways the genome. The big technology there that has been, has been uh, talked about lately is CRISPR. So can you just explain for people in a non-technical way what CRISPR is and how it works at a basic level? So CRISPR is uh, one of many ways of editing the genome, and, one of, one of, and uh, editing the genome is one of many ways of doing uh, gene therapy. Uh, you could include gene therapy as a subset of editing. It's, I think it's more reasonable to consider editing a subset of gene therapy. So I would say you can add genes, you can subtract gene functionality, you can precisely change it like you want to change like one base pair, an A to a G, um, and then you can do what's called epigenetic uh, therapies where you're changing the way the genes work without changing the genes themselves. So adding genes is kind of classic gene therapy. You, many people that have a genetic disease, they're missing both copies, their mother's and their father's copy of a gene, and so they, they, they need to get it added back in. Um, and that's most of the, of the gene therapies that are in uh, clinical trials right now are of that type, adding. So that's not editing, in my opinion. Um, editing, and most editing that is moving its way towards clinical trials is also not precise editing, where you change an A to a G. Mm. Uh, it's subtracting. It's you're editing. You make a mess in the gene, and it doesn't function anymore. And there are not that many genetic diseases that are fixed by that. Um, but that's changing. The precise editing is something that we're getting better at, and, and uh, that will that's the the a big category. But there are plenty of these uh, gene therapies, and even editing that's making it into the clinic and having impact already. This is not far off. This is already happening, and it includes. Uh, cancer, uh, retinal diseases, and uh, hemoglobin uh, apathies like uh, sickle cell anemia. Interesting. So CRISPR allows you to edit the genome. In principle, you can change individual bases, but in practice, we're not quite at that level of fidelity yet. Right. The, the, the topic of editing has actually undergone a, a form of great inflation. So when, I, when my lab started editing, uh, in the 80s, uh, late 70s, uh, we meant precise editing. We meant you, you dream something up in the computer and you make it. Um, and actually there was a Nobel Prize awarded uh, uh, long before the, one, the much deserved one to Doudna and Charpentier. It was to Capecci and Smithies for work that they did in the 80s for precise editing. But it, the, the, the great inflation has resulted in Almost anything you do to a gene is editing, uh, even if it's imprecisely knocking it out. I see. Which is fine. And on this side of the technology, I think there's another startup that you helped seed called Editus or Editus, and they're using CRISPR technology. Can you talk a little bit about the types of things that they're working on with that technology? Right. So Editus was arguably the first CRISPR company. Jennifer Dowden and I. Uh, co-founded it along with uh, three others, Feng Zhang, uh, Keith Young, and David Liu. All of them have gone on to be pioneers in all aspects of, of uh, gene therapy and editing. Um, Editas was, was the first, but it was quickly joined by two other good companies, all within a few blocks of each other in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Very amusing. And people would ask me, you know, uh, you know, are, is, is this competition a problem? I said, no, this is actually not enough. Three companies are not going to be enough to handle thousands of genetic diseases uh, that are rare, plus many that are common, plus aging reversal, which is also a kind of a genetic disease. And so I, I felt that wasn't, uh, and 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 we've we're continuing to, to form new uh, gene therapy companies uh, as needed. Uh, but Editas uh, specifically went after um, diseases that would benefit from removing. Um, uh, a copy of a, of a gene variant that was dominant, let's say, uh, mm -hmm. something that where uh, one copy could make it worse, um, or where uh, you could change a regulatory sequence and express uh, a new uh, a related protein. So, so for example, what, uh, 
there are two ways of dealing with sickle cell, at least two ways. One of them is to express fetal uh, version of the hemoglobin, and the other is to actually correct uh, the, the uh, adult copy. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, I think Editas has, has uh, gotten the first uh, in vivo um, uh, gene edit, uh, CRISPR editing in, in a retinal disease, LCA10. Um, so, uh, that's, and they've also helped with uh, the CAR-T uh, technology, which is, I would say, is one of the most promising anti-cancer because you're basically using a, 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 a engineered part of the immune system, the T cells, to go after um, a particular uh, subset of blood cancers like B-cell leukemias and lymphomas. Mm -hmm. So for the retinal thing, are we essentially talking about a potential cure for certain for forms of blindness? Correct. So, uh, so there, there have been uh, gene non-editing gene therapies for blindness, and now there's an in vivo, meaning you inject directly into the retina uh, adeno-associated virus, a, caps a protein capsid surrounding the um, uh, CRISPR editing uh, um, genetic uh, components. So, so you mentioned that there was these two other CRISPR-based startups, and that this was a good thing because there's actually so many applications here that this won't even be nearly enough to tackle them all. So it sounds like we, you know, shouldn't think of this as you know a classic zero-sum startup war. But yeah. there's so many diseases that could benefit from this type of research, and so many therapies that could be developed that. You know, all of all of these three startups could each make breakthroughs in completely separate diseases using yeah. the same basic technology. Right. Yeah. So this, the other two are CRISPR Therapeutics and Intellia, and as far as I know, all three companies are doing pretty well. Um, they they uh, have not um, interfered with each other. In fact, I've been uh, been uh, together with all three CEOs quite frequently, uh, or, or representatives, all three companies at meetings, and they're they're quite they get along quite well. So I, I think it it's there are plenty of industries like this where there really just is not enough talent to go around. Um, now that may change someday, but I I I think hopefully we're going to cure a lot of people before that we get to saturation. Mm -hmm. And so on this general topic of human genome engineering, you know, actually deciding and using technology to change human genomes, there is, um, there's a lot of promise and also a lot of concern. And so, you know, naturally you sort of see a spectrum of opinions about how we should do this or whether we should do this at all. One side of the spectrum, right, is, you know, if you've got a serious disease, like an embryo that will give rise to a baby with a fatal, terrible disease like Tay-Sachs or something, almost everyone that I encounter would say, yeah, we should be able to go in and fix that defective gene to prevent the death and suffering that will inevitably occur from a genetic disease like that. On the opposite side of the spectrum, you've got basically the idea of making designer humans. Someone could pay presumably a large amount of money in the future, go in and basically design their own baby that has the best of everything. And most people seem to react to that by saying, well, we shouldn't be able to do that. Um, so obviously what's tough about this is there's really no hard and fast line in between those two extremes where you can easily say, yes, we should be able to do these types of things. No, we shouldn't be able to do these other types of things. Do you have a general sort of framework that you use to think about the bioethics of something like this that you might be able to share with people? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, I, I teach a course in bioethics uh, every year. Um, it's, it's required by the NIH, um, a responsible conduct of science, and, and, uh, and, and I've co-authored a lot of papers on, on these sorts of topics. For this particular topic, which does come up quite a bit, I think there's, uh, you can break it down into various parts. I mean, first of all, there's, there's very little medical need for um, germline, which is what, what uh, you didn't explicitly say that, but it's changing the, uh, the reproductive part of the, of the human so that every subsequent generation will inherit it. There's very little um, uh, call for that so far. Uh, it's, a, it's an imagined market. Even the, even, uh, the designer baby is, 
pretty hypothetical, uh, um, both because technically difficult and uh, and and not uh, a, a medical public health emergency of any sort. So, if it were technically easy, as is most cosmetics, uh, even cosmetic surgery, but 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 most of the things that you would do this cosmetic, you do with literally with changing your hair color, your, your eye color with contacts and, and so forth. Uh, that's problematic partly because it encourages, you know, bad relation with your body uh, uh, view. view. Uh, um, it, it reinforces ancestral discrimination and so forth. Uh, the other, uh, so, I, so I, was, I would say that that's a very low priority at best. Um, the other aspect is the equitable distribution. So even the, the somatic gene therapy, meaning the currently approved, FDA approved gene therapies um, are very expensive and they fall in the category of orphan drugs. And I think we're grateful that they're, the Orphan Drug Act, I think uh, uh, it allows us to, to, um, to not ignore these rare diseases um, but it also creates uh, a market uh, for very expensive medicine, so million dollars a dose. Um, so and that's thematic. That has nothing to do with germline. It has nothing to passing on from generation to generation. It is uh, of problematic bioethics because it is not easily equitably distributed. Now that take, keep in mind that we are in an era where many technologies that are very expensive, let's, let's say the $3 billion non-clinical genome uh, mutated in, into $300 high quality clinical genome in just, I don't know, fraction of a decade, um, then um, maybe we could bring down that cost. So that's, so that's one way of, of, of addressing equi equitable issues. There's also uh, the normal ethics issues that are completely uh, well established in the FDA are safety and efficacy. Those I think we can trust the FDA will deal with, except for the very long term. The FDA will approve things that pass short-term toxicity. Um, they're not really well equipped to deal with equitable distribution, that I already mentioned, nor um, possible long-term consequences. So, for example, if you get cancer chemotherapy, you're changing your, you're mutating your germline in a way that, that really the, the benefits of the cancer chemotherapy outweigh the risk to subsequent generations has been the, the argument. Um, um, it's interesting that there, there tends to be more enthusiasm or, or, or more of a, we'll let this pass if it's perceived as random or natural than if it's intentional which is kind of the opposite of the way it is in most other uh, engineering fields. So if, if a, a bridge accidentally falls down, uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, you want to intentionally design it so that it won't. Um, but if you intentionally design uh, a child, um, other, you know, other than say education and, and uh, you know, uh, good nutrition and clothing and so forth. Um, so there's there's all these kind of ex exceptionalisms and uh, focusing on methods rather than on outcomes. I suspect that we will, that as we get closer and closer to these things, we will focus more and more on the outcomes. Uh, there is a, a concern about enhancement where people forget that most of our technologies are enhancing, uh, you know, vaccines have make us a, a, a superhuman relative to our ancestors. Uh, mm -hmm. We can just calmly go through a ward full of people with serious infectious diseases not, and not have to worry about it, uh, while our ancestors would have been terrified if they, if they under, assuming they understood the risks. Um, so enhancement isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as it's equitably distributed and, and, and safe in a long-term sense, but it's hard to test long-term. It's really hard to get um, paid uh, to, to, to get funding for very long-term clinical studies, but it happens uh, um, one way or another. It happens in what's called phase four, if nothing else. 
One of the switching gears a little bit, one of the things that was so interesting to me when I took my bioethics course as a young PhD student, which you taught, was that you gave us an interesting disclaimer at the beginning of the class, which is that you actually suffered from narcolepsy and it was possible that you would just suddenly fall asleep if you weren't completely engaged at any given moment. And you also shared that you have dyslexia as well, I believe. And it was an interesting conversation because these are two things that most people would say are debilitating, at least to some extent, and yet you've lived with them for a long time and had a very interesting and successful career despite these things. So could you talk a little bit about what it's been like for you to cope with both narcolepsy and dyslexia and how you've sort of navigated how you conduct your work with those things and whether or not you actually, like, do you actually feel that they're disabilities or do they actually help you in certain ways that you've learned to uh, appreciate? Uh, well, let's start with narcolepsy and dyslexia are the sort of things that, that make you have your, your employment prospects are, are restricted. Um, they're not, it's not, this, there are some jobs that, that, that where you can, but if you're in some countries and some cultures, uh, people, children are quickly uh, shunted into um, different uh, training paths, different employment paths, even at a very young age, uh, they take tests and, and, you know, it, it's decided, um, that, that, you know, if, if you can't read, you're really not going to be qualified for most, uh, uh, white collar, pink collar, uh, uh, uh professions. And, and, uh, fortunately your brain is capable of reprogramming itself. It's, it's hard. Um, but you know, if you've ever seen a stroke victim, for example, go from not being able to walk or talk to being almost normal again, you see the incredible power of rerouting. Also, you're doing things often in a very different way than than your previous brain or what might be considered a neurotypical brain would operate. And I think that's what happened to me over the years as I figured workarounds. Um, you're sort of desperate, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's not fun. Uh, it's, it's not fun being freakish at all at a, you know, when you're going through elementary school, because everybody wants to make fun of whoever's not in the middle of the bell curve. It's also not fun to be classified as someone with, that doesn't have much future because they can't stay awake and they can't read. Um, but, uh, you know, I, t I kept getting classified as needing remedial reading classes and I think it was like in eighth grade and in um, end of my senior year like transitioning to college um, but that's you know I, I figured out different ways to read and different ways of coping uh, I've I've, uh, I've, I've uh, visited and taught at the at, at schools for dyslexics and I see all it's it's a much better era now if you if you're fortunate enough to to make it to one of those schools and there's hundreds of them in the United States uh, alone. Um, uh, you know you 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 listen to books on audio. Uh, that's a, that's a solution. You have book readers uh, that will help you read. They, they they're they're often quite bright. Uh, the dyslexics I've met. Uh, just, even the ones that are more severely affected than I am, where they haven't been able to learn uh, really how to read. They have to listen to spoken versions. Um, but there's, you know, there's coping mechanisms. For the narcolepsy, uh, that really hasn't improved much. It got worse as I became a teenager. In fact, I might even be considered a teen onset. Uh, my daughter is affected as well. It varies a little bit uh, with not just the, the adolescent hormones, but with pregnancy hormones. Uh, so, um, but the, you know, the coping there is finding a job where you don't have to drive, uh, <laughs> finding a, a spouse that can help you drive or can drive with you, um, uh, instead of you. Uh, uh, but that rules out a whole lot of jobs. Uh, and then, and then I think it's communicating with people so that they don't think that you're just bored with them or that you did, or you considered 
staying up late playing video games was more important than your than your day job. It's, just, it's sometimes a misperception of people who have daytime sleepiness is they're staying up all night doing things they they shouldn't be doing, and then, and then they don't do their day day job properly. It also helps to be kind of be your own boss because uh, then. I mean, you still have people judging you if you're not communicating, but at least um, they're not judging you in a way that's fatal for your career. Um, uh, anyway, uh, it's, you know, it's it's all risks versus benefits, and I think that that uh, some there are some benefits for being dyslexic and narcoleptic uh, uh, early in life. You do look at things differently, and uh, and. Uh, yeah, I think that some of the things I learned from the dream state and from having to deal with things visually a lot. I, when I would read books, I would read an encyclopedia, uh, uh, but I would mainly look at the pictures, uh, which was both uh, easier, but it helps you to make makes you think about things more visually and spatially. So, mm. it's so, just, so it's your different. brain was it's not not better, just different. I see. So, so you had to take a more visually oriented strategy as opposed to sort of internally verbalizing words to yourself because of your dyslexia? Um, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, 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 I did have trouble with the uh, verbalization as well. I, I had a reputation as late as graduate school of saying three words a day. Uh, I, that may have been uh, preference as much as aptitude. I, it's hard to say, hard to disentangle them completely. But, uh, you know, I was naturally attracted to fields like crystallography and microscopy where, you know, the three-dimensional image is, is kind of the, the point. Interesting. Um, one area that I wanted to ask you about, because I know we're short on time, is synthetic biology. So very broad questions. What is synthetic biology? biology in broad terms and what do you think is some of the most exciting stuff going on in this neck of the neck of the woods today well synthetic biology is one of those umbrella terms that that means different things to different people i think that's healthy you can think of it as the the biological equivalent of synthetic organic chemistry or you can think of it as the uh engineering sort of the engineering rigor brought to biology hmm. or you can think of it as various subfields, different flavors of synthetic biology would be like origins of life is a kind of synthetic biology or uh, um, uh, simulate doing some of the things that computers do. So uh, programming with biology, uh, there are various metaphors that go well beyond metaphors there um, using, you know, logic gates and so forth. That's one another field. Synthetic genomics is another field where you're actually literally synthesizing or hyper edit doing so many edits that you're changing the genome radically um that doesn't necessarily overlap the the other fields and and the list is you know synthetic biology can include developmental biology and ecosystems basically anything that's biology you can more than just observe it which was kind of classic biology was the hunters and gatherers that would go out and observe nature and bring back stuffed bobcats and things uh now we can change it uh, in that in medicine that's uh, therapeutics and in agriculture it's uh, um, it's the basis of most agriculture and almost all agriculture is using genetically modified organisms either by classical methods or by recombinant DNA or even now CRISPR are there people working on creating life from scratch today in the lab it's hard I mean, there are people that would like to, including myself. Uh, th th there are two things. One is, how do you really do it from scratch? I mean, the, the people probably closest to that are the prebiotic uh, um, researchers who are saying, asking, can we make it differently? Can we do it from scratch differently? The more different it is, the more you can argue that it's from scratch. But if you try to just synthesize a genome, you're already in. You're already cheating in so many levels. Uh, I mean, it's it's a good cheat, uh, but you know, you're you're in you're you're accepting all of the evolutionary baggage, mm -hmm. uh, all the great evolutionary uh, gifts. Um, you're you're using the same polymers, the same enzymes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if you go back to prebiotic, then you can say, 
is there, are there polymers other than DNA? Can you use, you know, uh, a different uh, sugar rather than uh, deoxyribose or ribose? And there are plenty of examples of those. So can you use, uh, can you play around with the phosphate? Can you play around with the bases? A different, can you do non-Watson-Crick uh, base pairing? Um, can you even get rid of the hydrogen bonds completely? That's been shown to, to work um, from uh, Floyd Romesburg's work. Um, and so forth. So, so, but going all the way to scratch uh, it is, uh, is, is very challenging because most, even the prebiotic, they're really, there's a heavy bias towards trying to figure out how it actually happened rather than all the alternatives. Um, but th there's a healthy amount of each. Interesting. Um, going back to something you said earlier, you mentioned, let's assume that, that most listeners will know that genes can encode proteins. You actually mentioned earlier when we were talking about the human genome, that something like 1% of the genome actually encodes for a protein. And although that's a very important 1%, it's only 1%. And there's been a lot of talk in popular press for many, many years now about so-called junk DNA. I'm wondering if you could just unpack for people what that other 99% of the genome is and maybe what some of the exciting things are that we're learning about the non-protein coding regions of the genome. Well, I actually did my thesis, uh, not, uh, sort of, uh, it was a mixture of technology development for new sequencing technologies that we mentioned earlier, and it was on junk DNA. And the thesis was that, that, that some things that might appear to be junk DNA actually have functions. So it was functions of introns. Introns were the just discovered, uh, and, uh, and I was working in two of the first uh, introns discovered, and they had functions in them. Uh, so what's in there? So, so first of all, the introns themselves are, are, are not, do not find their way into the final proteins, typically. Um, and uh, they're uh, involved in regulation of, 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 of RNA metabolism, RNA splicing, so forth. So, so, and they can contain regulatory elements that act at the DNA level, like uh, enhancers. So enhancers can, uh, can be in the original DNA and they can act on nearby promoters to regulate the level and the, what tissue type uh, RNAs are made. And they can either occur in the introns, which are later spliced out before you make the, the, the protein encoding RNA, or they can be upstream in, in other kinds of so-called junk DNA uh, that is never transcribed into RNA. There's plenty of RNAs that stay RNAs and do their function as RNAs, ranging from uh, the key components of RNA splicing and protein synthesis, ribosomes, tRNAs, and so forth, uh, to um, regulatory RNAs that will, that will bind to other proteins or to other RNAs or to DNAs. So there's, a, there's no particular reason that we should think that the 1% that encodes proteins is particularly more useful other than the fact that in simple organisms like bacteria, the the proteins constitute 90, 90 plus percent of the genome. And therefore, it seems at least for bacteria, you don't need that huge amount of other DNA. That's why. Uh, and also, you'll see variation even within animals from, say, genomes around 90 million base pairs to genomes that are hundreds of billions of base pairs. And so that so-called C-value paradox indicates that it might be junk because it, it seems to change so rapidly in evolution compared to proteins. But uh, that said, um, to be really junk, to be something, it would be that you can delete it and have no consequences. And, and by no consequences, I mean less than a fraction of a percent uh, advantage in the wild. And so it's hard to prove that some, in fact, no one has really pointed out to me uh, or in the literature a, a bona fide example of this base pair is definitely junk that you could replace it with anything and you'd have no consequences at a population genetic level. I think that's, that's hard to do and it's probably unlikely. Um, we know that there are certain sequences that if you pop them in just about anywhere, they're going to be toxic. So that means that the sequence at, that, at any point in your genome is at least avoiding those toxic sequences, right? So it's not completely neutral. Nothing is completely neutral. So I, 
I'm not a, you can tell I'm not a fan of the junk DNA hypothesis, putting it mildly. You know, in the interest of time, um, are there any final thoughts that you would leave people with generally regarding biotechnology and perhaps the general attitude that we should have, or, or at least that you have in terms of, you know, should we be optimistic about what the future is bringing or should we be skeptical and perhaps scared as a lot of people are? Well, I think they're not necessarily contradictory. I think we should be uh, um, cautious about all new technology, not just biotechnology. A anything that's new, we should have been more cautious about the internet and maybe we would have avoided uh, the level of hacking and viruses and uh, identity fraud and so forth that we have. Okay, so we should always be cautious. Um, safety should be like number one priority. Um, but there's also, we can be under optimistic where we underestimate how quickly something will change, especially when you have an exponential where the technology like sequencing technology has improved 20, 30 million fold in a, less than a decade. If you underestimate that, then you're ill prepared both for the negative and positive, uh, consequences of it. So I think, uh, this is something where Cautious optimism is definitely, uh, it, it could change everything. It's likely to change everything. And if we pay attention, it, it will change everything in a very good way. And why I say that is it, it's not just restricted to medicine or even to biology, agriculture, and so forth. Almost anything we currently manufacture uh, could be probably made cheaper and better with bio nanotechnology. So the, the, the best nanotechnology in the world is bio nano. It's basically biology makes things that are atomically precise. And by that, I mean that um, every atom is in the right place uh, by the specification of the organism and a fraction of an atom diameter matters. So there are enzymes where if you move things by over by a fraction of the bond length between two atoms, it changes the enzyme catalytic rate completely. So biology is re really good at that. And we're going to exploit it probably for making everything from including, uh, um, uh, not limited to, to what we normally think of as biology, including information storage, computing, uh, new materials, all these things are, are going to be done. Um, and, and cheaply, because you can have an entire forest for full of precise matter right now, um, and it's all free. Um, you know, n nobody uh, ordered up the primeval forest uh, on a purchase order. So that uh, those would be my parting shots: is uh, think about it as a, an incredible set of gifts uh, that that where a billion years of trial and error have perfected all kinds of gizmos that, that we're just beginning to appreciate. Uh, things like CRISPR came out of junk DNA. It literally was classified as junk DNA until we figured out what, it could, what we could do with it. And we're probably not even close to done with uh, most of the things that we've discovered <laughs> in the biosphere. And for non-specialists, is there a good place or a good resource where they can follow either your research in particular or just developments in the biotech world in general that you might recommend? Well, if they go to my website, we try to alert them to what's happening in general. So uh, we're, we're, uh, we're kind of uh, not heavily specialized and work on many different technologies. So it's a, it's a, it's a good uh, resource. A, a book I wrote called Regenesis is, is still fairly uh, relevant for synthetic biology. Um, and there are not, not that many books that are written about the where the synthetic biology is going. Um, so those are, those are two that I happen to be quite familiar with. Um, um, I think increasingly podcasts like this one and, and uh, the popular science literature is getting better at following these fields. So uh, that's kind of a really easy way to get into it. There's a slight bias towards certain topics that are more popular, uh, um, but it's still it, it, whatever whatever gets the pub, pop, the public 
excited enough about science. In my era, it was, uh, um, you know, moon uh, landing on the moon. You know, now it's it's things like you know cancer therapies and uh, you know uh, applying molecular biology to ecological conservation and de-extinction and things like that. That captures the imagination. And then they look at, hopefully, look at adjacent science and it's, it's, it's power to benefit them. All right. Well, Professor George Church, thank you for your time. Thank you.